Welcome to the Climate Report on WFMP-FM Louisville. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and this is episode number 123. Today's topic is Disempowering Corporate Ogres, Part 1. So we'll be talking about why disempower corporate ogres. What are they doing that is so objectionable? And aren't these big companies the backbone of our economy? So we'll be talking about that in a few minutes, but first, here's what the Climate Report is all about. So I usually start off the show by saying, okay, here's what we believe. Climate change is real. And I've always felt a little uncomfortable with that because it makes it sound like a religious belief. You either believe it or you don't, and it's in the realm of religion. But my man Ron Placone was saying, you don't believe it or not believe it. You either accept it or you deny it. You either accept the findings of science or you deny the findings of science. The fact that the earth is warming and that warming is caused by human activity is accepted by 97% of scientists in peer-reviewed articles. And most people believe that, but still what they don't know, what most people don't know is how serious it is and how urgent it is to address the problem. So here's how climate change works. So the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is measured by parts per million. So prior to the Industrial Revolution, which began about 200 years ago, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was 280 parts per million. Now it has risen to 410 parts per million. So the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has increased by 50% in the last couple hundred years, and most of that increase has occurred in the last 30 years. So the rate of increase is increasing. And if we continue on the current path, we're going to end up with about 1,000 parts per million in the atmosphere by the end of the century. But I'm cautious about talking about the end of the century because there's so much that needs to be done within the next 10 years. There's so much that needs to be done immediately. There's so much that needs to be done like yesterday. But if we continue with business as usual, if we continue on our current course, we're going to end up with about four times the amount of carbon in the atmosphere by the end of the century. And here's the thing. If we stopped emitting carbon now, we would still have warming The reason for that is that when a carbon dioxide molecule gets into the atmosphere, it stays there for thousands of years. So the warming, so we we emit carbon into the atmosphere, that carbon stays there for thousands of years and continues to warm for thousands of years. There's a delayed effect. Some people are under the impression that, well, when things get rough, we'll just change our affairs then. But when things get rough, it's going to be too late. And it's already too late for a lot of things. It's already too late for preventing the ocean from becoming more acid. It's already too late to keep the ocean from warming by one degree Celsius. And when the ocean warms by one degree Celsius, That causes a lot of the glaciers and ice caps to melt. Glaciers and ice caps are needed around the world for a supply of fresh water. Recently, we found out that the oceans have absorbed a lot more 
heat than we had previously uh, suspected. That means much more of the warming is locked in. Some of the effects of climate change that are already occurring in the present and the recent past, we've got record forest fires. When you have a record forest fire that destroys the forest, forests are carbon sinks. Forests, if we allow them to, will absorb much of the carbon from the atmosphere. And it's important that we can keep our forests so they will absorb carbon from the atmosphere, meanwhile providing habitat for wildlife. We cannot live on this planet without wildlife. We cannot live on this planet without insects. Insects include pollinators. Pollinators pollinate plants. We need plants for the very air we breathe. We also need insects to decompose our garbage and continue the life cycle. So we've had record forest fires. A forest fire releases carbon into the atmosphere and a forest fire destroys a carbon sink so that carbon sink is no longer there to absorb carbon as it was before, which in turn causes more warming and the process continues and perpetuates. That's called a feedback loop. It's a self-perpetuating, self-reinforcing, continually ascending cycle. Feedback loops are one of the things that make prediction really precarious. So in a sense, nobody can predict the future. Scientists do the best they can. Quite often we turn around to find out that things are happening faster than we expected. But these feedback loops are like wild cards. So here's another feedback loop. As warming continues, the Arctic ice melts. As the Arctic ice melts, the surface of the Arctic Ocean, especially in the summer, the surface of the Arctic Ocean turns blue, whereas it was white. The ice is white. The uh, unmelted ocean, the melted ocean, the water ocean is blue. Blue absorbs more heat. So the ice melts because of warming. It turns the ocean blue. The blue water absorbs more heat and the warming continues, thus continuing a self perpetuating, self-reinforcing feedback loop. Here's another feedback loop, and it involves the release of methane. So in the frozen north, in the tundra of the frozen north, there's a lot of methane in those frozen places in the north, in the tundra. So as the tundra melts, methane is released. And this is also true of the floor of the Arctic Ocean. As the floor of the Arctic Ocean becomes less icy, it continues to melt and it releases the methane. Methane is a deadly greenhouse gas. Methane, for the first 10 or 20 years after it's released, is 80 to 100 times more potent than carbon dioxide. The release of methane into the atmosphere can almost overnight increase the amount of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere by 50 to 100 percent, which then continues the warming effect and continues with the release of more methane, continues with the melting of the ice caps, continues with the forest fires. And so we have these wild cars that we just don't know anything about. I mean, we know stuff about them, but it's hard to predict the exact behavior and the exact outcome. The models that we have for predicting the future are just not very good. 
at predicting the future. Surprise, 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 the future is hard to predict. In business, the future is hard to predict. In politics, the future is hard to predict. In culture, the future is hard to predict. And because scientists are very conservative in nature, I mean the scientific enterprise is very conservative, they are reluctant to sound the alarm on things that they are uncertain about. So the point is that when it comes to climate change, we are messing with something that we don't know anything about. I mean, we know a lot about it, but we can't easily predict the future. And it's really, it's more likely that the future will turn out worse than we can predict, than that it will turn out better than we predict. So it's almost as if the medium case scenarios or the likely scenarios are probably a bit more optimistic than they should be. And that's why it's, it's aggravating and frustrating when we have people in Congress and people in the presidency and the administration standing in the way of science. They're putting everything and everybody at risk. And it's not just people in government, it's people in these big corporations. The fossil fuel companies have known about climate change since the 1970s. The fossil fuel companies knew about climate change more than a decade prior to the public really knowing about it, which was in 1988 when NASA scientist Jim Hansen testified before Congress. That's kind of the the origin of the modern climate movement, the, the time when Jim Hansen told Congress about this problem. And for the last 30 years, it's almost as if we can't be bothered. We, meaning the powers that be, which is actually a small minority of us who are in control, who are able to block meaningful change, they can't be bothered. So that's what we need to change, and that's what the Climate Report is all about. This program is part of WFMP's Public Affairs Educational Programming. The views expressed are those of the speaker and not the station. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, or feedback, please email info at theclimatereport.net. So the title of this three-part series is Disempowering Corporate Ogres. So I decided to make the mascot and the cover art for this series, Shrek. Now, Shrek is one of my favorite movies. Maybe you're a fan also. But, so Shrek is an ogre, but the thing is, Shrek in many ways is just the opposite of what I'm calling corporate ogres. Because Shrek, you know, he's disagreeable. At the beginning of the movie, he's disagreeable and grumpy. But it turns out he's kind of a nice guy. He has a heart. Corporate ogres are just the opposite. They want you to think that they are nice and good and positive. They are good for the community. They're good for our economy. They're, uh, they create positive personal experiences for you. But behind the scenes, they are really monsters. And I'm not talking about the people that work within these corporations. And I'm not, talking, I'm not saying everything they do is bad. If everything they did is bad, it would be an entirely different story. But they do some good things, but they do some really bad things, and they have enough money and power to shift the focus from the bad things they do to the good things they do. 
they put billions of dollars every year into PR and advertising to make us have positive feelings about them. But we need to look at the negatives that are going on behind the scene, and we need to get organized and take action so as to reduce their power. So talking point number one is that our mascot for this series is Shrek, but Shrek is just the opposite of the corporate ogres. Talking point number two, we must disempower the big corporations, and here's why. 2A, they rule the world. They have all the power because they have all the money. Money is power. And I'm not just talking about the corporations themselves, but I'm talking about their powerful investors, their powerful shareholders. So the biggest corporations are defined as the Fortune 500. So if you take the 500 biggest corporations and their controlling shareholders, put the smallest group of people that amount to 51% of all the outstanding stock, these people rule the world. So the Fortune 500 and the Forbes 400, the Forbes 400 is the 400 richest families. Between the Fortune 500 and the Forbes 400, they rule the world. They rule the world because, just because. But we must disempower the big corporations because A, they rule the world. B, they are anti-democratic. C, they destroy local economies. D, they represent concentrations of power. We're supposed to have a democracy. When you have too much power concentrated in too few hands, then that is counter to democracy. That takes away the democracy that we're supposed to have. Letter E, power is the power to do damage. Power is not neutral. Money is not neutral. Power is not neutral. Money is power. So money is not neutral. Power is not neutral. It is the power to do damage. Money and power is the power to cause wars. It's the power to put toxic pesticides into our environment. It's the power to put toxic food into our environment. It's the power to pollute water. It's the power to buy government. Letter F, big corporations are the guardians of business as usual. Big corporations are the guardians of the fossil fuel-based economy. Big corporations are the guardians of the war machine. Big corporations are the guardians of their own monopoly powers. Big corporations keep corporate media in place, and corporate media tell lies about our world. Corporate media has a corporate narrative. Corporate media reinforces a pro-corporate narrative. A, lead, a story, actually a study was done about the events leading up to the Iraq war. And the study looked at all the people that were interviewed on network TV and cable TV. And out of 400 people interviewed, how many of them do you think were peace activists? If you guessed 10, that would be too high. Because the actual number was 3. Out of 400 people interviewed by cable news and TV network news leading up to the Iraq war, three people, less than 1%, were in favor of peace. Even though, at the same time, America was about evenly divided. About half the people wanted to not go into war 
and about half at some level approved of the war. So what I'm saying there is that the corporate media is in the business of advancing a pro-corporate narrative. In this case, pro-corporate means pro-oil and pro-war profiteers, the people who make the weapons and the transport vehicles and the bombs that we use in war. Lastly, big corporations have the power to buy our government, federal, state, and local. Big corporations have the power to buy our government, federal, state, and local. And let me ask you, if big corporations have the power to buy our government, do we have a democracy? Arguably, we no longer have a democracy if big corporations have the power to buy our government. Talking point number three, I'd like to read this list that appears in a book and movie called The Corporation by Joel Bakken. It's called The Corporation, The Pathological Pursuit of Profit and Power. It says, The corporation exhibits many of the traits found in people clinically defined as psychopaths. Psychologist Robert Hare recites a checklist of psychopathic traits and ties them to the behavior of corporations. Here are the traits. Number one, callous unconcern for the feelings of others, incapacity to maintain enduring relationships, reckless disregard for the safety of others, deceitfulness, repeated lying and conning of others for profit, incapacity to experience guilt, and failure to conform to social norms with respect to lawful behavior. So when fossil fuel companies have known for decades about climate change and they spew out and they support propaganda to the contrary, are they exhibiting a reckless disregard for the safety of others? You bet. When fossil fuel companies support fracking, are they supporting a, are they exhibiting a reckless disregard for the safety of others? You bet. When they blow up mountains and pollute water, is that reckless disregard for the safety of others? You bet. Is it deceitfulness? Yes. The fossil fuel company among other, fossil fuel industry among others, is heavily involved in deceitfulness. They're just like the tobacco companies. For, for decades, the tobacco companies knew that smoking was harmful, and yet they carried on PR campaign. They hid their science. They kept their science secret, and they carried on PR campaigns to make it seem like smoking was no big deal. The oil companies are doing the same thing, and that's deceitfulness. It's reckless disregard for the safety of others. It's repeated lying and conning of others for profit. It's incapacity to experience guilt. It's failure to conform to social norms with respect to lawful behavior. And that is the true nature of most, if not all, of the biggest corporations. So, from here forward, we're getting into how... For the first 20 minutes, we've talked about why we need to disempower corporations. And the word disempower, what that suggests is we're going to employ non-drastic yet very effective means to remove their power. It's going to be illegal, it's going to be safe, it's going to be ethical, but we need to 
surround them on all fronts and diminish the power that they have because there's Moses didn't come down off of mountain and say thou shalt organize your businesses in the form of huge corporations. There's nothing set in stone about this. It is not natural law that we should have huge corporations. Nothing against the small corporations, but the huge corporations are problematic, and there's nothing that requires us to have these big legal entities. Human beings invented corporations, and we can uninvent or reinvent corporations. So how do we go about this? Talking point number four, raise the minimum wage to a living wage. So if we raise the minimum wage to a living wage, like 15 or $20 per hour, we've been taught that that's going to cause unemployment because some businesses that can afford to pay people $7.50 an hour can't afford to pay people $15 an hour. And that's true, but what that point ignores is that if people are all of a sudden earning $15 an hour, then they have more money to spend in the local economy. So the net effect of raising the minimum wage is to empower the local economy. We've also heard that if there's a minimum wage, then that favors some workers over others. But if workers have more money to spend, then the local economy is going to be a place where people at all levels can get better jobs. Talking point number five, we need a universal basic income. There's a presidential candidate by the name of Andrew Yang, who's an entrepreneur, and his main issue is universal basic income. His proposal is to pay people $1,000 a month or $12,000 a year. Once you turn 18, you receive $1,000 a month from the government. Now, conservatives and libertarians say, well, you shouldn't pay people who don't work. Otherwise, people will want to work less. But Actually, an experiment was done in a Canadian city. They had a universal in, uh, income, universal basic income for a time, and nobody worked less except for students and new mothers, which is to say that students were working on their schooling and new mothers were taking care of their babies. The fact is, people want to work. People don't want to not work. And a universal basic income would have, the fact of, would have the effect of infusing lots of money into the local economy. You'd have disabled veterans who all of a sudden would be able to afford some of the basic necessities of life. Homeless people all of a sudden can afford some of the basic necessities. And then when they have that money, they spend it. So if you want to stimulate the economy, what you don't do is give it to rich people through tax breaks and bank bailouts. If you want to stimulate the economy, give the money to poor people who will spend it. The poor and the middle class will spend the money that you give them. Another positive effect of the universal basic income is that maybe somebody is working three jobs and all of a sudden maybe they can only have to work two jobs or maybe one job. So if somebody is working three jobs, that's a lot of driving 
Driving is hard. There's a lot of carbon footprint involved with driving. So the people in the lowest wage jobs are often the ones who are responsible for an unnecessary carbon footprint. So universal basic income will reduce some people's carbon footprint. So I've been talking about some of the practical considerations around a universal basic income, but why is it right? Why is it good? Why is it just? Why is it fair to give people universal basic income? Here's the reason. It's because a universal basic income is an example of redistribution of wealth. Redistribution from the wealthy to the less wealthy. Downwards. Redistribution downwards. That's good and right because what we have systemically is we have a lot of upwards wealth redistribution. The Defense Department is the best example of upwards wealth redistribution. People make a lot of money off of war. So you and I pay, the taxpayer pays for war, and rich people profit from war. Sometimes unconsciously, because if you have stocks in a portfolio and somebody's managing it, then it's going to have some of the war profiteers in it. It's going to have fossil fuel companies in it. Fossil fuel companies make a lot of money off of war. In addition, what we spend on the Defense Department results in technology. We have computer technology, laser technology, aerospace technology. So when this technology is developed, it's then just handed over to corporations that can use it. And that benefits nobody more than the stockholders of those corporations. So corporate, the corporations that rule the world, they want government to invest a lot in research and development so that they can then use that to make a profit. And almost without exception, the taxpayer is never repaid for their decades of investment in computer technology or internet technology or aerospace technology. The taxpayer is never repaid for any of that. And this is one of the biggest untold stories in our culture and in our economy. But this is an example of upwards wealth redistribution. And it is because there is upwards wealth redistribution, that's why it is justified to have downwards wealth redistribution. And guess, guess where you will never hear this? You will never hear this on the corporate media. Because the corporate media are in the business of selling a false narrative. The corporate media are in the business of selling a false pro-corporate narrative. Because they are corporations, they do business with corporations, they are owned by corporations, and they own other corporations. So the big corporate media are in the business of selling false pro-corporate narratives. And that's why you'll never hear the corporate media talk about upwards wealth redistribution. But that's why social programs that redistribute wealth downward are completely and entirely justified and also very necessary. I've got about another minute left, so I would like to wrap it up and give you something to think about. So there are people in our culture who have really bought into a pro-corporate narrative because you know, we get most of our information from the corporate media 
and the corporate media are always fashioning a pro-corporate narrative. You're not going to hear the corporate media talk about how corporations rule the world, how they're anti-democratic, how they destroy local economies, how they represent concentrations of power, and we're not supposed to have concentrations of power in a democracy. The corporate media is never going to talk about how power is the power to do damage. Power is not always wielded in a way that is benevolent or altruistic. You're not going to hear the corporations, the corporate media, talk about how big corporations systemically are putting our entire species at risk. So I'm glad you're here getting some of your information from a non-corporate source. That's all we have time for. I'm glad you've joined me. Hope you'll come back soon. Hope you've been having a nice day and continue to do so. Bye now.